electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Work by raising interest rates. We do that over time. And what that does is it, it increases mortgage rates, but just at the margin. And the same thing with the uh, car loans and things like that. And ultimately, that slows down demand, ideally, in a way that comes to a, a gradual halt and economic activity continues. So that, that's what we're trying to do here. Um, right now, we need to move away from very low interest rates. They're not appropriate for the current situation in the economy. The economy is very strong. Unemployment is low. Wages are going up. Um, the labor market is, is quite healthy. And inflation is all too high. So we, we're responsible. We're accountable for, for inflation. And we're going to use our tools to, to bring it down. May I have a little more time, Chairman? I know this is your committee. Thank, thank you, sir. Uh, very kind. Uh, so, question for you. As you think about the next meeting when you discuss the interest rate increases, uh, are there increments that you would consider, not foreshadow, foreshadowing your decisions, but the incre- incremental increases that you think would bring it, the spending and the, the inflation down while not over-challenging the economy? Yeah, so as I mentioned yesterday, my thinking at this time, which is a very, very sensitive time in markets and in in the world because of what we're seeing happening in Ukraine, and we don't know the economic implications of that, I said that I would be recommending and supporting a a one-quarter of 1% interest rate increase at our March meeting, which is two weeks from uh, yesterday. So, But I I also said that if... um, if we don't see inflation behaving as we expect it to behave, which is to peak and begin to come down, if we see inflation behaving in ways not consistent with that, then we're prepared to raise by more than that amount in a, in a meeting or meetings. Very good. I would simply say for, as I call them, the uh, kitchen table economists all across the country, typically moms making hard decisions on rationing the amount of resources that they have and the priorities that they have, I think it's really important for us to make us clear as possible and as simple as possible, their understanding and appreciation for what's happening when you're trying to run a very strong and uh, heavy load at at home and you have a full-time job. I think what we can do to talk in a way that makes it easy for us to digest at home, we are doing our uh, public, the average person in our country, a lot of good to understand what we're trying to explain. Thank you. Senator Warren from Massachusetts is recognized. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Right now, our country is trying to enforce strong sanctions against Russia, weather the political economic fallout of the Ukraine crisis, and address the pandemic-related inflation and corporate price gouging that's hurting American families. Much is at stake for our country. But Republicans on this committee refused to show up and vote on five nominees to the Fed. They refused to do their job. This is shameful and it is risky. Any Republican talking today about the risks facing our economy should be willing to show up and vote on Fed nominees. So let's talk about one of those risks, Mr. Chairman. 
As Russia has invaded Ukraine, the centerpiece of the U.S. response is economic sanctions. The U.S. and its allies have rolled out some of the strongest economic sanctions in history, severely restricting Russia's access to the global financial system. By sanctioning the biggest banks and companies, by kicking Russian banks out of SWIFT, the international payments messaging system, and by freezing the Russian central bank's foreign reserves. Now, these sanctions are powerful, but Russia can dodge some of this pain by using the same cryptocurrency tools that are currently used by drug traffickers, cyber criminals, and tax cheats. I'll pick one example here. We've all become familiar with ransomware, where a cyber criminal infects someone's computer system, locks it up, then demands payment in order to unlock the system. And how do they get paid? Through unregulated cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Chair Powell, you know, do you know, who cybersecurity experts say is the world leader in ransomware attacks and in getting paid through cryptocurrencies that allow them to obscure and hide their trails. I could guess, but I... I, I you want to you you make a guess here? Based on what we're talking about today, it's Russia. You know, if you listen to our own national security agencies, the answer is Russia. And that's why when President Biden held an international summit last year to fight ransomware, Russia the biggest source of the problem, was intentionally not invited. According to one estimate by the blockchain analysis company, Chain Analysis, uh, Russia-linked actors collected nearly three-quarters of all ransomware revenue in the world last year. And hundreds of millions of crypto dollars are collected in Moscow each quarter. As much as half of those come from illicit crypto wallet addresses. Russia is the world's expert on moving money outside legal channels. So, Chair Powell, obviously, you do not administer sanctions, but you are an expert on the international financial system. So I just want to take a look at this. Are other countries currently using cryptocurrencies to evade sanctions? I'm thinking here of North Korea, Iran, Venezuela. I honestly, it's not something we're responsible for. I, I mean, I, I have read it. I've read publicly that those things have happened, though. Yes. Well, the Treasury Department, the Department of Justice, the United Nations and the IMF all say that the answer is yes. Crypto takes the sting out of sanctions. And in fact, the Treasury Department warned last year that crypto could undermine our sanctions regime. Theoretically, the crypto industry is supposed to enforce sanctions as well. So let me ask, Chair Powell, in the, is the crypto industry enforcing sanctions right now? So I've, what I've read, again, we don't, this is really for the Treasury Department, but I've, I've read the same things you have and that you had in your letter, which is uh, the, uh, some reluctance expressed on the part of the crypto industry to do that. All right. They are supposed to, but the problem is they haven't been doing a very good job. Just read the Treasury Department's sanctions review or the U.N. reports on sanctions compliance. We know that many crypto exchanges and wallets 
are not collecting information about the identities of their customers, are not screening their platforms for illicit activity, and are not reporting sanctions violations. Heck, this is how North Korea has been able to move money around and finance its illegal missile programs. Here's the thing. The whole point of crypto is that it allows someone to conduct financial transactions without having to go through the traditional banking system or traditional financial intermediaries. Right now, millions of transactions are taking place that are completely unregulated with no one verifying who gets what. And that means that while sanctions can make it very difficult for Russian companies, uh, political leaders and billionaires to move money around in the traditional financial system, there is another shadow, unregulated world that they can turn to. Crypto poses a variety of threats uh, to financial stability, to investor protection, to our environment. But crypto is also providing a new way for countries to sanction-proof themselves. Cracking down on crypto is a critical piece of holding Russia accountable for its aggression. We can't fool around any longer. We need to get new crypto rules in place. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Moran from Kansas is recognized. Chairman, thank you. Uh, Chairman, thank you. Um, at least one that is Senator Warren, uh, Q&A at Senate Banking with the Fed Chair. Welcome to Tech Check this morning. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. You have been watching the Fed Chair, Jerome Powell, testifying in front of the Senate Banking Committee. Some comments there about uh, the potential use of cryptocurrencies to evade and skirt some of these financial and economic sanctions that have been placed on Russia from players all around the world. Markets have been in a relatively tight range, but we have lost some gains since the open uh, as we got some reports of a tough phone call between Putin and Macron, and a little bit of back and forth on these reports of a potential Iranian deal that would release more crude onto the market. For more on what we've heard from Powell, including some comments again about a quarter point hike, let's get to Steve Leisman. Steve. Yeah, Carlin, I think uh, the, the market's really moving on those Macron comments that you and Scott Wapner tweeted out that uh, the worst is to come. But but there is some perhaps uh, a lot of interest, I think, in what Jay Powell is saying, taking a series of questions from senators in the banking committee uh, about the impact of the Russian invasion on Ukraine and the U.S. economy and monetary policy. Now, while Powell said that there is some potential hit to demand, he said the biggest impact would be for the inflationary impact of higher oil and commodity prices to work their way through the U.S. economy. Now, Senator Shelby, it was a really interesting moment, asked Powell earlier if the Fed was willing to go as far as Paul Volcker did in the 1980s to squeeze down the U.S. economy to wring out inflation. Here's what he said. Let me say I knew Paul Volcker. I, I'm pretty sure I saw him testify in this room many years ago. I think he was one of the great public servants of the era, the greatest economic public servant wow. of the era. And I hope history will re record that the answer to your question is yes. So you're, at, you're, you're prepared to do what it takes without any reservation to uh, protect price stability. Yes. And that would be a departure of what you've done. His comments come after Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester right here on CNBC said it's possible the Fed may have to raise rates above the neutral rate of 2 to 2.5% two to combat inflation. Powell added the war also made supply chain bottlenecks worse as ships were not being unloaded in some places. Overall, though, Powell seemed to stick to his plan to raise rates at the upcoming March meeting by 25 basis points but and proceed deliberately thereafter because of the uncertainties of the economic fallout from the war, even though... The inflationary impulse from this war could argue for even faster.
policy hikes. Deirdre? Steve, there's been an increasing number of questions around cryptocurrency's role in Russia potentially being able to evade sanctions. You just heard from Senator Warren, who said crypto takes the sting out of sanctions. You hear Fed Chair Powell say that it's not really their job. But what could the Fed do here? How is he answering, in your opinion, these questions? I don't I don't think the Fed has much of a job in this. Uh, Deirdre, I throw it more to you on this. My, My understanding is that Russia has tremendous foreign currency needs right now. You saw the ruble today spiked up to 117 to the dollar before coming back down. And by the way, I've been watching the ruble exchange rate in euros and in uh, uh, Chinese yuan. And both of those are also it's also depreciated significantly against those. The Chinese don't seem to be helping uh, Putin out in this regard. So I don't think that crypto has the ability at the moment in scale to help Russia. You would have to have Right now, there's a de- demand for dollars inside of Russia. You'd have to have this ability to change those or start change those rubles into hard currency and then back. Sorry, into cryptocurrency and then into some other form. Uh, it, it, it's possible. I just don't know, Deirdre, and you would know better than I would yeah. if the crypto market has that ability for that kind of scale to make it happen. Yeah, I think that's what we talked about earlier this week, Steve, with Kate Rooney, is that there's not enough liquidity and they are highly traceable, some of these transactions. So I'm sure there's going to be more to unpack here. I think John has a question. Right. Right. Yes, Steve, going back to the the question for the Fed chair about how far he's willing to go to achieve price stability, there's some concern that we might be headed for stagflation uh, right now. How does that play into the, the needle that the Fed is trying to thread right now? Inflation from energy and food prices. Yeah, well, at that point, it's a very large rope, right? I mean, it's not a needle anymore. So uh, the issue becomes that you have this impulse of inflation, and then because of the war, because of other things, because of higher rates, that the economy uh, were to slow down. That is not obviously the Fed chairman's first forecast or first choice or, or outlook for the economy. He thinks there's a lot of play in the economy here, the ability of uh, that, that, that the unemployment rate is 4%, the GDP is running, ran at 7%, and it's supposed to be above trend this year. He thinks he has the ability to raise rates, and the inflation is going to come down as a result of that and other things. And then he thinks the soft landing is what is in his forecast for now. Steve, with your help, we'll monitor the ongoing Q&A uh, in front of Senate Banking. Yeah. That's our Steve Leisman. Sure. Thanks. Uh, for more on the market reaction, let's bring in our Mike Santoli, who was watching that open above 4,400, Mike, which we did bump our heads on. Uh, what's your take so far? Yeah, I mean, the market continues to really not do any more than the minimum acceptable bounce, at least uh, at the moment. Not really free of this undertow, not just of the Russia-Ukraine headlines, which clearly is the main uh, suppression of risk appetites right now, but also just the, re- the valuation adjustment that's been underway in the NASDAQ, the tactical uh, kind of resistance that we've been hitting uh, in the market right here. Everyone is looking for the S&P 500 around 44.50 or above. That's where it becomes any, something more than just kind of an oversold bounce uh, and, and maybe can mean that it's breaking out of this downtrend. Now, we do have a decent cushion. The lows last week, they look pretty good. We got oversold. Sentiment's really nasty. And, and, and pessimistic. That's a net positive for the market. But overall, I feel like we're just twitchy in this range uh, until further notice. Energy down seemed to give a little bit of a lift in the pre-open market, but it's not decisive enough at this point, uh, I think, to give anybody a lot of conviction ahead of the jobs number tomorrow. I was going to say, uh, crude has been a puzzle all morning long. Uh, you got commodities on pace for the biggest weekly gain since 1960. Yeah. Um, 
And then you had City remove its short on December crude. On the other hand, short selling in crude is at near a one-year high. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to kind of pull apart all the dynamics here, except to say that in the short term, this move is very stretched. Uh, it's for good reason. You know, I always say when, when you're talking about trying to secure physical barrels, it's the inverse of why crude traded negative last year. It wasn't because people thought oil wasn't ever going to be worth anything again. It was because they literally mechanically did not want to take the oil. Now it's the opposite. So nobody's making a value judgment, really paying 111 here, hoping to sell it at 130 down the road. I think it's much more about the supply. However, momentum money behind that supply uh, rush is something that I think you have to be wary of in the short term. Going up for the wrong reasons uh, is the way you would characterize it for the rest of the equity market. So, uh, you know, right now, I think I'm watching the energy stocks to see if they're handicapping uh, maybe a short term pause in this move. All right, Mike, thank you. Uh, We will continue to monitor the Fed chair's testimony. Turning now to a few earnings movers, though. Take a look at Snowflake. Shares plunging more than 18 percent after reporting its slowest revenue growth since 2019. I mean, Q4 was still more than double year over year, though. CEO Frank Slootman joining CNBC's Mad Money last night for more on the quarter. Take a listen. The moods of the market is a little foul right now for, uh, you know, for good reasons. Um, but, you know, uh, a quarter is a, is a single mile marker in a marathon. Let's not get too excited here. Uh, we're in the beginning innings of an enormous opportunity and transformation uh, in, in the economy. And, uh, you know, this is going to be a blip on the radar, uh, you know, pretty soon. Another cloud name taking a hit this morning, Okta. You see it there down 10.5%. Revenue beats. Q4 losses were smaller than expected, but the guide is weighing on the stock. It's forecasting steeper losses than expected for both Q1 and fiscal 23. C3AI, a name in the green, smaller than expected loss. You see it up fractionally. Revenue beats raising revenue guidance for the year ahead as well. Uh, We should note the stock is down about 40% since it went public uh, in December 2020 at a heady time for stocks. And we're going to sit down with Tom Siebel for more on those results in just a few minutes. Also got results from Box, Nutanix, Pure Storage, Best Buy, uh, outside of of that realm, Grab as well, uh, that we'll hear from a bit, Carl uh, it's it's a busy morning for uh, earnings, and, and to me, the story is about expectations and valuations as much as anything. Uh, it's, it's a big mix of uh, micro and macro today, John. Absolutely true. Still to come this hour, we're going to continue to monitor uh, Fed Chair Powell and his testimony in front of the Senate. We're going to be joined by the CEOs, as John said, of C3AI and Samsara after those companies had results. Tech checks just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. 
Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Time for a gut check. Morgan Stanley downgrading Intel and Corvo. A shift toward growth stocks is what they're looking at, arguing that those offer more attractive risk reward here. Morgan Stanley buys into long-term projections from Intel, interestingly, but is skeptical of the short-term outlook, calling these semiconductor value stocks show-me stories. The two major risks, well, Intel's foundry investments and what that'll do to Intel's cash flow, and then Corvo's China smartphone business, Steve. We mentioned C3 AI earlier. The stock is higher this morning on the back of strong quarterly results and raised guidance. So it has come off its peaks. Still, if you look at the one-year chart, it has been grinding lower, down 75 percent, one of the hardest hit software names. Joining us now on the quarter, C3 AI chairman and CEO Tom Siebel. Tom, it's great to have you with us again this morning. Let me start with changes in your C-suite. You just brought on your third CFO in less than a year and a half. Why are your financial chiefs leaving? Well, our uh, CFO left after 12 weeks for some kind of highly personal, highly sensitive reasons. And um, that, um, you know, they were entirely personal in nature. They have to do with some personal relationships that he has. And I really, I don't want to say more than that. Uh, the bottom line is we have an extraordinarily experienced um, uh, chief accounting officer and chief uh, and controller who's been with the company roughly a year. I think he managed, I believe, order of 46 of 50 people in the FNA and organization. So he managed the whole organization anyway. And he's in a position uh, to immediately pick up as chief financial officer. So we're in very good shape there. But as it relates to the immediate past CFO, he had some personal issues that he had to deal with in a very short order, and, and it's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. Okay, understood. Tom, let's get into those results. Your customer entity count decreased from last quarter, and I understand that you're going to have a new way of calculating customers going forward. It will include different divisions or groups within the same company. So I wonder, how will investors know if you're actually increasing the number of companies that you work with versus deeper integration, especially when there have been so many questions around diversification? Is this really the best way to present this metric? Well, we presented, first of all, we've not changed the way that we count customers. We've counted customers the same way all along. And we basically count um, pretty much standard in the software industry is the way we do it. We count kind of unique divisions and unique entities okay, that license with us for unique projects. Um, and uh, in, in unique divisions, for example, at a... a a, a large manufacturing company may have multiple divisions, multiple use cases, multiple decision prices, processes, and multiple acquisitions. And each of those are counted as unique customers. And that's that that has not changed. Um, what has changed, what, what did change is in the course of uh, becoming compliant of UHO, our CFO, you know, get us in compliance with SOX and putting all, all the internal controls in place, it became apparent that we were 
we, we had undercounted our customers using that methodology. So uh, for uh, to provide complete compare, uh, transparency, we, 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 we applied you know, the historical numbers and the revised numbers, I think going back five quarters so everybody can see it. It's entirely transparent, uh, but we had been undercounting our customers by um, basically a factor of two. Tom, I think we have 218 customers and it's entirely transparent. Just, and it's just accurate. to clarify, Tom, you will keep the customer entity count going forward as well as the new way that you're calculating them? Yes, we've always calculated. We would, to, to, for the most conservative uh, way, do it. We provided the customer entity and uh, we, 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 we did provide that. Uh, and that that does bounce around a little bit from quarter to quarter. For example, if somebody does a trial, they do a customer. The tri- they are a, they are a customer entity. When the trial the trial might be say twelve to sixteen weeks. When the trial expires, they're no longer a customer. Let's say it takes three months or six months to negotiate an enterprise agreement, then they become a customer again. And that's why that customer entity bounces around a little bit. But. Uh, that's yeah it's very clear it's entirely transparent and we did it in the way of we did this in a manner to make it most transparent to investors and and consistent with the way it's done in the enterprise software industry uh tom good to see you Uh, we've talked in the past about uh your customers in the defense space uh and i understand you also had some work that was in progress in russia tell me how does this geopolitical situation affect your customers writ large and then your work in that region? Uh, we had, as of the end of the quarter, we had, I think, or as of today, we have no work in progress in Russia and we have no exposure to Russia. Um, we, The fact is we were working, we have been working on a number, a uh, couple of large transactions uh, with our partner, Baker Hughes, with large oil companies in Russia. Okay, and those were a business that we were looking at, you know, in the short term. And obviously, the probability of our closing those transactions is zero. But we have no exposure to Russia, and um, and there's no software installed there. And anything that we might have been forecasting for Russia, I can assure you, we are no longer forecasting. We also do not do business in China, as you know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for for similar reasons. Tom, thanks so much for being with us today. Tom Seaball, C3 AI CEO. Talk to you again soon. Thank you. Switching gears, Julia Borston has some new data on the percentage of women in leadership roles within corporate America. Julia. Well, John, we are a long way from gender equity in business. There are are massive, persistent gender gaps, but women are holding more leadership roles. This is according to exclusive new Equilar analysis of Russell 3000 companies. Growth of women in executive roles accelerated to an average of 6.9% between 2016 and 2021. That's up from a 3.8% rate over the prior five years. Now, women comprise nearly 14% of named executive officers in 2021. Now, that number does not sound high, but it is progress, up from 8% in 2010. The sectors that are lagging, energy, it has the lowest representation of women as named executive officers. Officers with 9% representation, followed by financial services with 12%. 
Financial services also had the lowest growth rate of all the sectors. Now, the sectors that have made the most progress to closing gender gaps, utilities, where 21 percent of leadership is female, and healthcare, which has 16 percent female leadership. There are also certain roles in which women saw greater gains in representation, and the biggest gains were at the very top. The percentage of female CEOs more than doubled from about 2% in 2010 to over 5.5% in 2021. Meanwhile, CFOs, treasurers, and finance VPs saw far slower growth. You can find more of our Closing the Gap coverage on CNBC.com, including more on these very important issues. Yeah, Julia, I, I, I don't know, really interesting data, how much you're able to parse it, but there are certain roles within those named executive ranks, among those the CFO, that have more tendency in many industries to lead up into a CEO role later. So I wonder if there was any examination in this report of how the pipeline might look based on these numbers. I mean, you raise a very good point, but I think the fact that we're having this conversation, John, the fact that you raise that point is sort of speaks to a greater awareness of the fact that for a long time, the fact that you had to be a CFO or have exposure to that part of the business, that was sort of the natural pathway to CEO. That's that's something that companies are starting to reevaluate. Another thing I'd point out is that there was also growth in the number of female founder CEOs that were in the Russell 3000. So showing that women are are able to grow their companies and lead their companies as CEOs as well. So I think that's that's another path to CEOs, founding the company yourself. But I do think that you do raise a very important issue, though we are starting to see changes in terms of what kinds of qualifications and what kinds of prior experiences are considered necessary to take the top role. Yeah, it's great to see that progress, uh, especially here on the ground in San Francisco. Uh, Julia, thank you so much. After the break, we will give you an update on Fed Chair Powell testifying in front of the Senate Banking Committee and how the market is reacting. Tech Check is back right after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. In just a moment, we'll take you back to the hearing room as the Fed chair continues to answer questions from members of Senate banking. But right now, coming off the session lows and what's been some pretty moderate chop today, Dow's down 124, S&P just south of 4,400, a level that we opened above today. First, a news update with Christina Partzanevelos. Hey, Christina. Hi, Carl. Let's talk about what's happening this hour. U.S. crude price is swinging through a $10 range this morning. They hit 13-year high above $116 a barrel in Russian supply worries. But all of those gains, and then some, were raced on prospects for an Iranian nuclear deal and that country's oil production re-entering global markets. West Texas crude now about a, down about a percent. 
And growth has slowed unexpectedly in the service sector, the ISM services index hitting its lowest level in a year. Meanwhile, factory orders grew twice as fast as expected during January. And Best Buy shares surging 7% today. Traders focusing on strong guidance instead of mixed holiday season results hurt by product shortages. BJ's wholesale on track for its worst one-day loss ever. The stock down about 14% on weak Q4 revenues and comp sales. Earnings guidance for this year is also below estimates. Holiday sales were disappointing at Burlington stores. Fourth quarter profits and revenue were shy of forecasts. And the company says retail spending this year is very unpredictable. Burlington now down about 10%. Back over to you, Dee. K-Parts, thank you. Meanwhile, Thanks. the Fed chair continuing to testify in the Senate. Senator John Kennedy just began his questioning. Let's listen in. And we're going to throw Russia out of the international marketplace. And obviously, we all agree with that. And he sanctioned everything. But he hasn't sanctioned Russia's energy. Europe is going to continue to buy Russia oil and gas. Despite the fact that Europe has 1,000 trillion cubic feet of natural gas that it refuses to produce. And America, right now, we're continuing to buy Russian oil. So how are we going, how, how are we going to throw Russia out of the international community and global markets if we don't attack their oil? And that, that really is a question for the elected government, by the administration, and particularly the Treasury Department. I know, but I'm asking your opinion, because you're a smart man. I appreciate that very much, but my, my opinion is that it's not something I would have an opinion on uh, as, as Fed chair. It's just we don't do energy policy. We don't do sanctions. We're, we're technical support. We're not the policymaker. So I would, I would be, it would be like the, the, the Secretary of the Treasury coming in and talking about monetary policy. Okay, let me take you back to... Uh the spring of 2020. Um, Governments shut down the private sector in virtually every country. Uh, Markets are panicking. Um, Everybody's looking at you to calm things down. You did. You did. And one of the things you did aside from the currency swap line that you established, well played. Um, you said we have to, we're going to, we meaning the Federal Reserve, are going to provide capital to American businesses. Okay? And you did. And you kept us going. And I thank you for that. Suppose, though, the Federal Reserve had said at that time, We're going to keep American businesses going and we're going to supply the capital, except we're going to use this opportunity to bankrupt the oil and gas community, the oil and gas sector. Where would we be today if we'd done that? You'd be very unhappy with me, inappropriately so. Um, Why is that? Well, because... Because some, some of your possible new colleagues think we should have done that. Because Raskin has talked about that, said we should have taken the opportunity to, to, at that point, to bankrupt oil and gas. So I I don't want to, I don't want to get into the... the... I just thought I'd slip that in. (laughs) I'm not asking you to comment on Ms. Raskin. 
our reserve trust are the other things that we need to get to the bottom of. I'm asking you to tell me what would have happened if we used that opportunity to bankrupt the fossil fuel industry, as Ms. Raskin suggested we should. Well. Strike the Raskin part. That makes you nervous. I can tell. I just, you know, we're, we're a creature of law. You passed the CARES Act. It didn't say anything about picking and choosing, and we weren't going to do that. We didn't do it. You think picking and choosing is a bad idea? I think, uh, you know, we actually have a, a document I have right here from 2009 where we, it's sort of our document where we negotiate with the Treasury Department who does what, and it, it talks about our, the fact that we don't get into allocating credit. We try to affect broad credit conditions. We don't allocate credit to particular industries. And that's, that's a document that we think is sort of one we live with. Thank you, Mr. Thank Senator. Thank you, Senator, Senator Ryde. I saw from George is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Chair Powell, thank you for joining us again. Thank you. That is Senator Kennedy of Louisiana with the Fed chair as the Q&A continues over at Senate Banking. We continue to be in this range here. Dow's down 171. NASDAQ actually the worst performing of the major averages, holding on to a loss of more than 1%. John? Yeah, and we will continue to monitor the Fed chair's comments and bring you highlights. Plus, coming up after the break, the CEO of a recent software IPO on earnings, Samsara, ticker IOT. Stay with us. It's been a tough few months for software stocks, especially for the smaller ones in general. Internet of Things software company Samsara IPO'd in December. Shares have grinded lower, losing about a quarter of their value. When it comes to fundamentals, though, beating expectations for its first full quarter as a public company. Joining us now in the first on CNBC interview, Samsara CEO Sanjit Biswas. Uh, Sanjit, good to see you again. Uh, looks like you got 64% uh, annualized uh, ARR growth, I should say, uh, recurring revenue growth year over year. And you're in this really interesting space when it comes to moving stuff around uh, for, for a challenging time in the global economy. Tell me how that's affecting your business and customers need to control cost in an inflationary environment. Well, hi, John. Thanks for having me on. So you're exactly right. We're in a very important position right now. So what Samsara is doing is we're helping digitize the world of physical operations. So if you think about areas of our global industry like supply chains, the food and beverage industry, but even construction and other essential services, these companies need to know exactly what's going on out in the field to help reduce their costs, to be more efficient, uh, to be safer, and also to be more sustainable. So that's what we help with. Is we provide technology for those industries. And by giving them data and analytics and insights, they're able to see very quickly how they can do a better job for their customers and keep costs low. And that's just more important than ever. So what's the impact, say, of spiking gas prices when you're dealing with fleet uh, technologies? D does that impact the, the growth rate overall and demand in a negative way? Or uh, is it more the effect of, hey, they want to spend as little as possible on gas? You know, John, I think it really is about being efficient. So fuel prices have always affected uh, the operations industries. They use a lot of energy to do their work. And so when fuel prices spike, they want to figure out how can they be as efficient as possible in how they run their routes, how they idle if they are, are idling out there in the field, and in general, where can they buy the, the least expensive fuel. So we provide tools that help with that. 
And uh, I would say now it's just very front of mind with these uh, gas prices really spiking. So it's something where they're trying to figure out how to spend less and how to be more efficient. You need data to do that. You're expanding uh, the, the categories that you want to move into. Uh, tell me, is it mostly about attaching new services and offerings onto your existing uh, base of customers? Um, and, and I'm looking through the numbers. I believe you've got, uh, what, more than 800 with uh, more than $100,000 uh, in, in annualized recurring revenue that they're spending with you. Or is it trying to take a full package of those to uh, new customers as well. So, John, we're doing both. Uh, in terms of our revenue base, we are seeing very strong traction in these larger enterprises. Customers have complex physical operations, and what they're looking for is a complete system. So they don't want just GPS tracking or just driver safety improvements or just compliance improvement software. They're trying to figure out how they can just be smarter with their entire operation. So that's where we come in. Uh, as you mentioned, we saw over 800. Uh, we have now over 800 customers that spend over 100K with us per year. Our large enterprise growth is very, very strong. We've got a number of Fortune 500 signing up. So our philosophy is to build them all the tools they need. Uh, our typical customers, over 70% of them, use two or more applications from us. In our large enterprises, uh, over 90% of them use two or more applications. So we're building more apps for them. And then we are just starting to scratch the surface of this market. It's a $55 billion total addressable market. It's growing to about $100 billion over the next few years. We're only a small fraction of that. We're about half a billion in revenue. So we have a lot of new customers to engage with as well. Sanjit, it's Deirdre. Speak a little bit more about that mix. Um, I know that you guys are targeting industries that haven't already been swept up in digital transformation. Where are you seeing the most growth and where do you anticipate that to come from? So, Deidre, the, the industries we serve make up about 40% of the global GDP, so it's a really vast and wide mix. We've got uh, companies in the supply chain, transportation, warehousing, in other words. We have customers in construction, food and beverage, uh, all the way through to local government and energy utilities. So we serve a number of these different industries. They are in that process of digital transformation, and I think that wave is just beginning for them, which is a little bit different than what we saw in kind of corporate office space and IT over the last few decades. So uh, it's a number of different vertical industries, but they're all going through this transformation, kind of going from 20th century pen and paper process to 21st century digital technology. And finally, Sanjit, how, how should investors expect to model Samsara's uh, SG&A, you know, your, your sales marketing spend, as you push more into those areas? Is, is it more product-led? Is it going to be more like a traditional enterprise model? So we are an enterprise company. We have a direct sales force. And for us, we're making investments in that sales force. So if you take a step back and look at our hiring, we're about a little over 1,600 employees now. We grew more than 30% net uh, headcount last year. We're going to continue to invest there across the board, not just in sales and marketing, but in engineering and our, in our GNA functions as well. But as an enterprise company, we need more people to engage with more customers. All right. Sanjit Biswas, uh, the CEO of Samsara. Thank you. Great. Thanks, John. Speaking of logistics, take a look at another earnings mover, moving things on a smaller scale. Grab falling sharply as Q4 revenue drops sharply year over year. That's because they're investing in getting more drivers on the road. I spoke with Grab's president earlier this morning in a Fort Knox interview. Here he is talking about Grab's strategy to keep that growth going. Q4 was really about reinvesting uh, into our supply network and really to be recalibrating our driver supply to take advantage of the growth that we see for you know, the rest of the year. I think at the same time, we're seeing deliveries continue to be very robust. 
Um, we're seeing basket sizes continue to grow, and I think we'll see um, deliveries as a permanent part of our business, even after uh, COVID. check on Peloton today, co-founder and until recently CEO John Foley selling another $50 million worth of stock to Michael Dell's investment firm. Despite selling nearly 2 million shares, Foley still owns enough stock to maintain effective control over the company. According to the filing, Foley sold the stock at 26 below the company's $29 IPO price. Shares have lost about three quarters of their value over the past 12 months. And even with that news uh, today, John, down another 6%. Yeah, there's been a tough tape for Peloton, Carl. Uh, Amazon, meanwhile, shifting focus, the tech giant announcing that it's going to close 68 retail stores, including all locations of Amazon Books, Four Star, and pop-up shops in the U.S. and U.K. Workers will get a shot at other jobs within Amazon. Those who don't get those will get severance. Sales growth from Amazon's physical stores falling behind its overall retail business with total sales coming in lower in 2021 than in 2018. Yet, according to a spokesperson, the company is still committed to growing its physical retail presence with a focus on its grocery and clothing stores. Amazon shares uh, are down about 10% for the year so far. D, it's interesting. I mean, Amazon responsible for shutting down bookstores yet again, this time its own, but they just they keep iterating within their model. Yeah, they do. Um, it's, it's a little ironic when they got in. Now it's a little ironic when they're getting out. But that's not to say that I think the main point of this is that they're putting all of their efforts into grocery. And Carl, this has been a space that they've been trying to break into for more than a decade and really struggled. We don't think about Amazon as sort of struggling to break into new businesses, the company that essentially created cloud. But it's had a really tough go. And still, in terms of market share, uh, way down the list compared to other grocers. And we know that it's coming out with more you know, offerings in that space. So we'll see how that turns out. But it's not like shareholders, Carl, are, are demanding they do anything different. Yeah. Uh, the emphasis on food, though, as you point out, Dee, uh, sort of re- is reflective of, say, the action today in Kroger stock versus American Eagle. It's all about grocery right now and not so much about apparel. By the way, Dee, we should mention uh, that Amazon is using both its logistics capability and its cyber uh, intelligence to help uh, companies in support of Ukraine, in addition to donating up to $10 million for some humanitarian efforts. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, After the break, more highlights from Fed Chair Powell calling for a 25-point basis point hike later this month. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Welcome back. I want to check in once again with our Steve Leisman monitoring Powell Senate testimony. Steve? Hey, thanks, Carl. Yeah, uh, Putin is uh, talking right now. I think we're going to bring you some of that later. But Fed Chair Powell continues to get pressed by senators with questions and concerns about inflation. He continues to tell them that he will be raising interest rates and reducing the balance sheet, but going kind of a little more slowly and steadily than he otherwise would because of uh, the war in Ukraine. Powell was asked if the Fed is modeling what happens to the economy if oil goes to $125 a barrel. He said they were. And the result, inflation goes up. Gas prices goes up and growth goes down a little bit. It's interesting what's happening in fixed income markets right now while Powell is telling senators the impulse from the war will be more inflation 
The 210 spread is hitting new lows. Take a look. We were down at 32 uh, just when I last looked. I don't know if we have that chart, but maybe we do. Maybe we don't. There you go. Nice job. Yes, 32 is the right number. So that's a sort of non-inflationary worry about economic growth kind of thing that's happening right now. And Marcus Powell had just said the Fed is watching very carefully if the oil price spike is temporary or permanent. And uh, Carl, just one thing I'm watching, I've not been able to confirm this, but it may be that Luke Oil, the country's second largest oil company in Russia, um, has come out and urged an end to fighting in Ukraine. Um, I can't confirm that. It's on multiple uh, uh, websites, including uh, by AFP, um, which is why I bring it to you. But um, they're obviously a, a, a privately owned, not state-owned company. But it would be one of the largest companies to come out, uh, uh, one of the largest Russian companies to come out against the war. Uh, we did see that AFP bulletin earlier this morning. Interesting, as we are looking at least for signs of cracks in unity regarding the Russian stance, Steve. In the meantime, Citi's got a note out on oil a moment ago, uh, and I'm quoting here, it's becoming probable that prices have peaked already or could soon consolidate near term if, if a top intentions are materially on the path to de-escalation. Uh, inventories are at or near lows, but stock builds are on the way in Q2, and that's certainly something the Fed will monitor closely. Uh, for sure, uh, Carl. And, and before the war began, I had been talking to people about the oil supply and the oil price because that is so key to understanding where the Fed is going to go. And they were predicting a decline in oil prices with an increase in production uh, here in the U.S. and elsewhere. Very quickly, Carl, we'll talk about this another time, but there is an interesting and new economics of oil in America. It used to be you'd have a big spike in oil price, we'd be sending oil abroad. We're producing a whole lot of oil. It stays home. The impact on growth may not be negative. All right. We've been talking for a while now about how the global economy is certainly less energy intensive, which is going to make this this cycle pretty fascinating. Uh, Steve, thanks for that. By the way, we've not mentioned as well sure. that uh, Zelensky with some comments calling for face-to-face -face talks uh, with Putin. We'll see how that develops as we monitor Putin's comments. Uh, let's get to the half and the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.